What's up, Amander listeners? It's Gloria here again with another episode all about the link between neurodegenerative disease and synapses. Today, I'll guide you through recent papers on synaptic mechanisms that underlie several neurodegenerative disease pathologies. Specifically, we have a bulk of papers that touch on changes to synapse plasticity and excitability, as well as global changes in neuron circuitry throughout the brain, and specifically the hippocampus. That's not all though. We'll also see how the structure of the synapse and axons themselves can be affected in Alzheimer's disease and how impairments in different neurotransmitter receptors can contribute to the disease. We have 18 papers to cover, so if you get excited about synaptic biology like me, keep listening. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Today's episode will be broken down into eight blocks of publications from February 2021, with one break in between. In the first half, we'll have papers on synapse and axon structure, neuronal connectivity, metabolism, and neurotransmitter receptors. The second half of the episode includes the topics of neuron plasticity and excitability, synaptic vesicle components, and lastly, one paper on brain injury causing dementia-related conditions at the synapse. Before I dive into the literature, this is a reminder that these are unbiased summaries based on the abstracts of peer review papers, and here at Aminder, we don't search for details in the paper like impact factor. We also don't check the methods or data in any detail, we just report what the abstract states. This is meant to provide you with an overview, but if you want to follow up on anything you hear today, we encourage you to find the papers in the bibliography in our show notes and give them a proper read. Now let's get into the science. Our first set of papers broadly deal with changes in or damages to the function of synapses and axons that occurs with neurodegenerative diseases. Paper number one is titled, Untangling the Association of Amyloid Beta and Tau with Synaptic and Axonal Loss in Alzheimer's Disease and was published in the Brain Journal. The first author is Pereira and the last author is Hansen from Lund University and the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. In this paper, the researchers were interested in how amyloid beta and tau deposition affect synaptic function and axonal structure in Alzheimer's disease. The way they measured this relationship was through levels of specific presynaptic, postsynaptic, and axonal markers in the cerebrospinal fluid of patients with different degrees of amyloid beta and tau pathology. They also looked at how these synaptic and axonal markers are related to cognition and markers of brain connectivity function and anatomy. The authors report that patients with early Alzheimer's disease had higher levels of pre- and postsynaptic markers linked to greater amyloid beta pathology, worse memory, and functional changes in the default mode network. Check out the paper for the details on these different markers. On the other hand, the researchers found that levels of the axonal marker, neurofilament light chain, were disrupted in later stages of disease. They suggest that this is linked to more tau pathology and worse global condition. According to these findings, the authors put forth the hypothesis that amyloid beta and tau may have distinct downstream effects on synaptic and axonal function depending on the stage of the disease. Speaking of axonal function, our second paper deals with axonal transport of important synaptic molecules. The title of this paper is Effects of Dynein Inhibitor on the Number of Motor Proteins Transporting Synaptic Cargoes by authors Hayashi, Miyamoto, and Niwa from Toyoku University in Japan. It was published in the Biophysical Journal. This paper looks at the damage to synaptic cargo transport along axons, which can be observed in neuronal diseases including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and Huntington's diseases. Specifically, the researchers used non-invasive force estimations of cargo transport by kinesin and dynein in hippocampal neurons. They report that inhibiting dynein using dynarestin reduced the force producing units for retrograde transport by these motor proteins, more than for anterograde transport. They suggest that these non-invasive force measurements can be used in the future to gauge the level of damage to axonal transport in neuronal diseases. 
Next, we have three papers that dive into brain connectivity and neuronal networks. This research focuses on how network connectivity in the brain of Alzheimer's patients differs from individuals without the disease, and how this may be related to molecular mechanisms underlying Alzheimer's disease. Paper number three can be found in the Cerebrocortex Journal and is titled Tau and Amyloid Relationships with Resting State Functional Connectivity in Atypical Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Sintini, and the last author is Whitwell from the Mayo Clinic in the U.S. This study aimed to understand the relationship between tau and amyloid beta accumulation within neuronal networks in Alzheimer's disease patients. Here, the researchers used several neuroimaging techniques, including amyloid beta PET, longitudinal tau PET, and structural MRI on a small group of patients with atypical Alzheimer's disease. They report that regions with high levels of amyloid beta were more likely to be functional hubs with high connectivity, whereas regions with high levels of tau were more likely to have low clustering and vulnerable networks. Their findings also suggest that regions that are highly functionally related to the disease epicenters are more likely to have elevated tau and amyloid beta. Together, the authors of this study use this data to suggest that tau and amyloid beta spread through different biological mechanisms in atypical Alzheimer's disease that are influenced by functional network connectivity. Whereas our last paper touched on different network patterns having different likelihoods of Alzheimer's-related pathologies, our next paper actually describes how Alzheimer's might induce changes in normal brain network connections. Our fourth paper is Dynamic Connectivity Alteration Facilitates Cognitive Decline in Alzheimer's Disease Spectrum by the first and last authors Wang and Ji from Southeast University in China. In this paper, the authors were interested in how changes in the trajectory of dynamic brain networks are related to cognitive decline in the Alzheimer's disease spectrum. 160 subjects with varying levels of cognitive impairment were recruited from the ADNI database. The researchers studied spatiotemporal patterns in the resting state networks of these individuals using a new method which combines large-scale network analysis with canonical correlation analysis. Check out the paper for the details of these analyses. I'm not going to cover all of their specific results, but I will note that the authors claim that all resting state networks represented an increase in connectivity within networks, while fewer resting state networks represented a reduction in connectivity. This large-scale dynamic network abnormality was significantly associated with molecular AD biomarker levels, cognitive performance, and the accumulating effects of a subset of Alzheimer's disease-related genetic risk factors. Another paper from the journal Brain Connectivity is up next. The title of paper number five is Finding New Communities, a Principle of Neuronal Network Reorganization in Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Weller and the last author is Drzezga from the University of Cologne in Germany. Sorry if I butchered that second name. This paper focuses on changes in the functional connectome of young and old individuals and patients with Alzheimer's disease. The authors report that the overall community organization of the human functional connectome was altered in patients with Alzheimer's compared to advanced healthy aging. They found that the communities were reorganized in Alzheimer's disease, leading to a less efficient community structure. Using molecular imaging PET, they also found that nodes that were likely to leave the community had a relatively higher tau pathology burden. In summary, the authors suggest a connection between local tau pathology in Alzheimer's disease and changes in the basic organization of the human connectome. The next block of papers covers the interaction that different metabolites and hormones have with aspects of Alzheimer's disease progression, such as cognitive aging and memory decline. To start off this section, we have our sixth paper, which dives into the role of cerebral metabolites in different structural and cognitive changes that occur with aging. The title is Cerebral Metabolite Concentrations Are Associated with Cortical and Subcortical Volumes and Cognition in Older Adults. It was published in the journal Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience by the first and last authors Williamson and Cohen from the University of Florida. The researchers here measured volumes of key brain structures using MRI and spectroscopy, as well as the concentrations of different compounds in the brain in roughly 120 cognitively healthy older adults. 
They report that levels of N-acetylaspartate in the frontal cortex were associated with limbic and cortical volumes. On the other hand, there was a negative correlation between choline-containing compounds in the parietal cortex with hippocampal and other regional volumes. They also suggest that hippocampal volume was correlated with forgetting, regardless of age and other findings related to fluid and crystallized intelligence and memory were reported. Overall, the researchers claim that there may be a link between age-related physiological changes in the frontal and parietal cortices with changes in structure in connected brain regions. Next, we have two papers that nicely tie together the themes of metabolism and neurotransmitter signaling, which is the topic for our following section. Paper number 7 is titled, Insulin Differentially Modulates GABA Signaling in Hippocampal Neurons and, in an age-dependent manner, normalizes GABA-activated currents in the TGAPPSWE mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. The first author is Hamoud, and the last author is Bernier from Uppsala University in Sweden. And you can find this paper in the Acta Physiologica Journal. This paper looked at the effects of insulin on GABA-activated currents in the hippocampal neurons from an Alzheimer's disease mouse model. They found that the response to insulin depends on several factors and contexts, including cell type, hippocampal axis location, age, disease, and subtype of neuronal inhibition. One result they noted was that insulin increased many total spontaneous inhibitory postsynaptic currents in certain hippocampal neuron subtypes in both wild-type and Alzheimer's disease mice at a young age and also at age 5 to 6 months. However, in aged 80 mice, they found that these inhibitory currents were already reduced and insulin actually brought the density of these currents back up to normal wild-type levels. There's a lot of info in this abstract, so please give the paper a read if you want to know the specific effects of insulin that they observed in the different subtypes of hippocampal neurons in different regions in young versus old mice in their Alzheimer's disease model compared to wild-type animals. Now we're jumping from insulin-related metabolism to noradrenergic or norepinephrine metabolism. Our eighth paper is Elevated Norepinephrine Metabolism Gauges Alzheimer's Disease-Related Pathology and Memory Decline, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The authors of this paper are Rip Hagen, Van Egru, and Jacobs from Maastricht University in the Netherlands and Harvard Medical School in the U.S. This is a paper that looks at the connection between noradrenergic metabolism and Alzheimer's disease progression. The authors studied around 115 memory clinical participants over time and found that groups with high levels of the noradrenergic metabolite called MHPG showed dose-responsive declines in learning. In contrast, they report no decline in the group with low MHPG. The researchers argue that elevated levels of this metabolite is a marker of learning declines and thus the locus ceruleus noradrenergic system is likely involved in initial Alzheimer's disease pathophysiology. Like I mentioned earlier, our next section jumps into the role of different neurotransmitter signaling pathways in the synapse dysfunction associated with neurodegenerative disorders. One transmitter system that comes up a lot when we talk about Alzheimer's pathology at the synapse is a nicotinic acetylcholine system. The title of paper 9 is Selective Coactivation of Alpha-7 and Alpha-4 Beta-2 Nicotinic Acetylcholine Receptors Reverses Beta-Amyloid-Induced Synaptic Dysfunction and can be found in the Journal of Biological Chemistry. The first and last authors are Roberts and Kim from Colorado State University and the University of Hawaii at Manoa, both in the United States. The authors of this paper wanted to understand how amyloid beta selectively affects certain nicotinic acetylcholine receptor subtypes in the hippocampus and not others, leading to synaptic impairments in Alzheimer's disease. They found that of the three major subtypes of nicotinic acetylcholine receptors in the hippocampus, two associated with amyloid beta. Via computational modeling, they suggest that this interaction is due to conserved amino acid residues that are not found in the third subtype that doesn't associate with amyloid beta. 
The researchers then confirmed the importance of these residues through mutation experiments. Lastly, they looked at how the specific co-activation of the two amyloid beta-interacting nicotinic acetylcholine receptor subtypes affects synaptic functions that are known to be disrupted by amyloid beta. Please give the paper a thorough read if you're interested in their specific results. Together, the authors suggest that differential regulation of nicotinic acetylcholine receptor subtypes is a novel mechanism for how amyloid beta disrupts synaptic function in Alzheimer's disease. With this next paper, we're shifting from the nicotinic acetylcholine system to the glutamatergic system. You can find paper number 10 in the journal Frontiers in Synaptic Neuroscience under the title PKN1 is a novel regulator of hippocampal GLUA1 levels. The first author is Safari and the last author is Zur Nedin from the Medical University of Innsbruck in Austria. Here the authors wanted to study the relationship between protein kinase N1 and AKT phosphorylation and the neurogenic transcription factor NeuroD2 in the hippocampus. Since NeuroD2 plays a role in glutamatergic synapse maturation, they also wanted to look at expression levels of NeuroD2 targets and glutamatergic AMPA receptor subunits. First, they report that protein kinase N1 is expressed throughout the hippocampus. When they knocked out the gene for this kinase, the authors found that both postnatal and adult levels of phospho-AKT and NeuroD2 were significantly increased. Additionally, they found that protein kinase N1 knockout animals displayed elevated expression levels and a greater membrane fraction content of the AMPA receptor subunit GLUA1 in the hippocampus. However, they found no changes in GLUA2 or GLUA3 subunit levels. The authors attribute these findings to the selective regulation of GLUA1 expression and or trafficking by this protein kinase N1 AKT NeuroD2 pathway. Future studies would need to validate a role for this interaction in hippocampal development and neurological disorders that involve changes to AMPA receptor subunit expression. Now that we're around halfway through the papers for this episode, I think this is a great point to give our minds a little break before we get into the next section. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back. We're starting off the second half of this episode with my favorite topic, plasticity. If you've listened to my past Aminder episode, number 111, you'll know that I think that plasticity is one of the coolest things our synapses can do. Unfortunately, synaptic plasticity is often impaired in neurological disorders, which is why it's important to study plasticity in this context. So without further ado, let's get into more of the recent literature. The first paper of this section is number 11 in our bibliography. The title is CNTN4, a risk gene for neuropsychiatric disorders, modulates hippocampal synaptic plasticity and behavior, and it was published in the Journal of Translational Psychiatry by first author Oguro Ando and last author Kass from the University of Exeter in the UK and the Brain Center Rudolf Magnus and University of Groningen in the Netherlands. This study focuses on the unique risk gene, contactin-4, or CNTN4 as in the title, which is an immunoglobulin cell adhesion molecule that is associated with multiple neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric disorders, including Alzheimer's disease. The authors here use the contactin-4 knockout mouse model to study the effect of this gene on memory and brain plasticity. They report that induction of long-term potentiation in the CA1 region of the hippocampus in the knockout mice was suppressed, suggesting a role for this gene in synaptic potentiation. They also found that the hippocampal CA1 neurons of the knockout mice had abnormal dendritic arborization and spines. Lastly, using several behavioral tests, the authors found that homozygous and heterozygous knockout mice showed an increased contextual fear conditioning response. Check out the paper for the full results of their behavioral studies. They wrap up their electrophysiological, anatomical, and behavioral results by suggesting that contactin-4 is important for fear memory, possibly through changes in hippocampal neuromorphology and plasticity. 
Next, we have paper number 12 titled High Levels of 27 Hydroxycholesterol Results in Synaptic Plasticity Alterations in the Hippocampus. This study was published in Scientific Reports by first author Loror Valencia and last author Marina Serias from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. In this study, the authors wanted to clarify the correlation between brain cholesterol and the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. To attempt this, they used a transgenic mouse model with systemically high levels of the lipid 27-hydroxycholesterol. They found that high levels of this cholesterol molecule resulted in enhanced long-term potentiation at hippocampal synapses. Accordingly, the authors also reported that these transgenic mice had dendritic spines that were larger than normal and had a higher density of the synaptopodin protein, which is involved in recruiting the spine apparatus. Together, the researchers suggest that elevated levels of this cholesterol are associated with changes in synaptic potentiation. They propose that this may lead to impairments in synaptic function and cognition later in life as observed in comorbidities of cholesterolemia and neurodegenerative diseases. Our 13th paper comes from the journal Psychopharmacology and is titled Inhibition of Protease-Activated Receptor 1, PAR1, Ameliorates Cognitive Performance and Synaptic Plasticity Impairments in Animal Model of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Zar, and the last author is Ismail Poor from Kerman University of Medical Sciences in Iran. For those who are unfamiliar, protease-activated receptor 1 is the main thrombin receptor in the brain that has been tied to functions in synaptic plasticity and memory formation. The name is a bit of a mouthful, so I'll refer to this protein as PAR1. The goal of this paper was to test how the inhibition of PAR1 affects spatial learning, memory, and hippocampal plasticity in Alzheimer's disease. Using a rat model of Alzheimer's, the authors report that blocking PAR1 activity using an inhibitor led to improved learning and memory when compared to Alzheimer's disease rats that did not receive the inhibitor. Similarly, they found that inhibition of PAR1 restored the induction of long-term potentiation that was seen to be impaired in the untreated AD rats. Now we're taking a small turn away from mechanisms of long-term potentiation and looking at short-term plasticity in this next paper. Our 14th paper comes from the Communications Biology Journal branch of Nature and is titled Presynaptic Endoplasmic Reticulum Regulates Short-Term Plasticity in Hippocampal Synapses. The first and last authors are Singh and Ned Carney from Indian Institute of Science Education and Research, in collaboration with the Salk Institute and Rice University in the U.S. The researchers here were interested in how the endoplasmic reticulum that is present in all presynaptic terminals functions in short-term plasticity. They used an in-silico model based on reconstructions of the rat CA3 to CA1 synapses to study the presynaptic ER in this context. Their model predicted that the short-term plasticity of these synapses relies on presynaptic ER. It also predicted that the calcium from these ER helps synapses with low release probability to function more effectively. Their findings connect back to Alzheimer's disease as inhibiting the ER in their model produces a similar reduction in plasticity that is observed in animal models of the disease, suggesting an important role for presynaptic ER in normal function. Our next section highlights papers on the regulation of neuronal excitability and how dysregulation can contribute to various aspects of Alzheimer's disease. Paper number 15 titled Motor Cortical Excitability and Paired Associative Stimulation-Induced Plasticity in Amnestic Mild Cognitive Impairment and Alzheimer's Disease starts us off. This paper was published by first and last authors Metter and Zeman from the University of Tübingen in Germany in the journal Clinical Neurophysiology. The topics of this paper are actually a good transition between plasticity and excitability in the realm of Alzheimer's disease research. In this study, the authors measured LDP-like corticospinal plasticity induced by paired associative stimulation in roughly 15 patients with Alzheimer's disease, 15 with amnestic mild cognitive impairment, and 25 demographically matched healthy controls. They used two measures of corticospinal plasticity in a hand muscle at baseline, and then perform the standard method for this form of plasticity. The plasticity effect was defined as the difference in motor-evoked potentials after the protocol compared to baseline. 
I'm not going to go into the specific results of their measurements, so take a look at the paper if you want to know more. But in summary, they did report that patients with amnestic mild cognitive impairment show corticospinal hyperexcitability. This observation in the prodromal phase of Alzheimer's disease may be related to glutamatergic excitotoxicity observed in early-stage Alzheimer's. They were not able to reliably test LDP-like corticospinal plasticity induced by parrot-associative stimulation because of high intersubject availability. And one last thing to note is that several authors on this paper state one or more conflicts of interest. Our next paper comes from the German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases in Germany at McGill University in Canada. This is our 16th paper and is titled Hippocampal Hyperactivity in a Rat Model of Alzheimer's Disease and was published in the Journal of Neurochemistry by first and last authors Susalina and Remy. In this study, the authors used a transgenic Alzheimer's disease rat model to look at the hippocampal micronetwork during the early stages of extracellular amyloid beta deposition. Using two-photon calcium imaging in vivo in the hippocampus of rats, they found that CA1 neurons were hyperactive in AD rats. They also described changes in neuronal input resistance and action potential width via patch clamp recordings in brain slices. However, they do not report any changes in synaptic inhibition or excitation. Check out the paper for the details of these results to get the full picture. The authors suggest that during the beginning stage of amyloid beta deposition and disease manifestation, enhanced intrinsic excitability of CA1 neurons may occur before disruptions in inhibitory function. We're nearing the end of this episode, and in the next section we have one paper on the synaptic vesicle glycoprotein 2 family, which I'll call SV2. The family is a critical component of the synaptic machinery responsible for neurotransmission and vesicle recycling. I wanted to cover this paper here, because several isoforms are actually associated with neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. The title of paper number 17 is Differentiation of Two Human Neuroblastoma Cell Lines Alters SV2 Expression Patterns by First and Last Authors Lekholm and Fredriksson from Uppsala University in Sweden. You can find this paper in the journal Cellular and Molecular Biology Letters. This study examines the gene expression patterns of the three isoforms of synaptic vesicle glycoprotein 2 or SV2 in two human neuroblastoma cell lines after differentiation. They do this in order to identify a system to study the regulation of these proteins. The researchers found that treatment with different growth supplements leads to different reactions in the two cell lines. They described that there were synergistic expression patterns between specific SV2 isoforms and other proteins involved in neurotransmitter synthesis and transport, including choline-O-acetyltransferase and dopamine transporter. These patterns seem to mimic the same connectivity observed in disease models and knockout animals even though they didn't perform any genetic manipulations. Thus, the authors suggest that these differentiation treatments on these cell lines may be used to study SV2 regulation and activity. Our last paper for this episode on synapses deals with something a little different, blast injuries in the brain. Interestingly, blast exposures, like explosive shockwaves commonly experienced with military service, are linked to increased risk for dementia. Neurological conditions such as depression, anxiety, and memory problems often develop after a blast injury even when no brain damage is detected. Last but not least, we have paper number 18, which was published in the Brain Pathology Journal. The title is Distinct and Dementia-Related Synaptopathy in the Hippocampus After Military Blast Exposures. The first author is Almeida and the last author is Barr from the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. In this paper, researchers took explants from the hippocampus and exposed them to highly controlled, small detonations of the explosive RDX. Their goal was to determine if there are certain markers of blast-induced changes within neuronal circuits. Their results mentioned in the abstract touch upon several synaptic proteins, including synaptophysin, GLU-A1, and neural cell adhesion molecule. 
so I won't go through all of them, but make sure to check out the paper if this is something that interests you. Basically, they found that blast exposures from RDX could reduce synaptic markers that are known to be downregulated in cognitive disorders without inducing significant neuronal loss or astroglial responses. In addition, they found that this decrease in synaptic markers was associated with tau levels, which manifested as tau pathology found in CA1 neurons and their dendrites. Lastly, the authors report that the reduction in synaptic proteins was also accompanied by a reduction in evoked postsynaptic currents in CA1 pyramidal neurons. They suggest that their results support the need for early biomarkers of explosives to gauge blast-induced changes in synaptic integrity that are likely linked with dementia risk. That's all for this episode. If any of these papers caught your attention, please check out the show notes where you'll find the bibliography for each of the papers mentioned in this episode. If the topics of this episode relate to your research or you just like learning about them, then be sure to also check out episode number 128 where Anusha guides you through treatments targeting neuronal and synaptic protection and neurotransmitter balance. To stay up to date on all things synaptic in the Alzheimer's field, you won't want to miss this. We are still recruiting. If you're interested in joining the Aminder team, please send us an email with your CV and tell us a little about what you'd like to do with us. For updates on our podcast or if you just want to reach out, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We love hearing your feedback. We also have a new YouTube channel where you'll soon be able to find all of our podcasts. And lastly, a big thank you to the whole Aminder team that put this episode of Aminder together. Specifically, thank you Ellen Rowe, Jax Ferreira, and the whole sorting team for sorting the paper into categories, Sarah Laudy for generating the word cloud that you see on your screen, Ellen Koch for reviewing my script and for reviewing the recorded episode post-production, Anusha Kamesh for audio editing and the beautiful music that you hear in the background, and Satish Kumar for the bibliography. We hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Thanks for listening!